listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get to this week's guest who has nearly half a century. That's right, half a century of military service that is coming up. Stay tuned. But as always, our usual reminders to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon through our website, hazardground.com, where you can click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. Do all your normal Amazon shopping. We will get a percentage of what you guys spend, then we donated a percentage of that back to some of the charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Of course, keep the Apple reviews coming. Uh, because those mean so much to us as we try to crack the top 100 Apple podcast. Short review, you can do it from your smartphone, from your computer. Give us five stars, tell us what you like about the show, and uh, maybe we'll even feature your review on our social media sites, but we certainly appreciate those. Finally, uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel or download the Killcliff TV app. You, this is where you can consume the podcast via video. Uh, as you know that we've been doing a video podcast now for several weeks, if you haven't caught up to that yet, but it's another great way to actually see our guests and get to know them a little bit more personally. So again, the Killcliff TV app, the Killcliff YouTube channel, or our Hazard Ground YouTube channel. On to this week's guest, who is a retired Chief Master Sergeant in the Air Force. He has nearly 45 years of service in the AC-130 world. He has flown in every major operation from Operation Enduring Freedom all the way back to Eagle Claw. Uh, he is writing the definitive history of the AC-130 as an Air Commando Hall of Famer and a SOCOM Hall of Famer, and he was a listener suggestion from an Air Force Special Tactics Officer. He is Bill Walter joining us on the Hazard Ground. Bill, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you, sir. All right. Uh, it's nearly impossible to cover uh, everything that you have been through, <laughs> and as I said, nearly in a half century uh, of service, so we're going to try to get through as much as we can, but just an incredible, incredible uh, history that you've been a part of to, to, to be it to span so many major things. Like, do you ever wonder how you've still been doing this for this long? All the time. Yes, <laughs> I do. Okay, so start back at the very beginning. If you can remember it, uh, how and why'd you get in the Air Force? Well, it was uh, the mid-70s, 1976. I was uh, getting ready to graduate from high school. I was in a small farming town up in Minnesota. And they're really, you know, you think about it, it was the end of the Vietnam War. It had just ended uh, a year prior to that. And I was a class of 76 grad, and I was looking for something to do. And I think a lot of young kids don't really know what they're going to do right out of high school. And there was this uh, guidance counselor in our school, very small school, and he says, guys, don't don't discount the military. Think about going in the military. So I gave it a good, uh, good thought, and I says, you know, I grew up in a fairly patriotic family. My dad served in the Navy, and I said, yeah, you know, I think I'd like to do that. So uh, four of us actually went into the Air Force uh, almost directly out of high school. I was. I graduated, and two weeks later, I was in basic training down in uh, San Antonio. So the post-Vietnam sort of thing, uh, did you feel like, you know, well, hey, we're not going to get into another war anytime soon. I guess this is a safe option. 
No, I didn't really think of that. I was more or less, uh, you know, it was not a popular thing to be in the military back then. Uh, people kind of, I was, my dad drove school bus and I was riding with him on his route one day. And uh, this uh, girl said, hey, uh, what are you doing after you graduate? My dad says, he's going in, uh, in the military. And she just looked at me with a, with a disgust, like, why would you do want to want to do something like that? And I says, well, that's what I want to do. And I just, it was just not a popular thing to be uh, joining the military uh, in 1976. That's generally it. So after basic training, um, what goes next for you and how do you eventually end up uh, as a, as a gunner on an AC-130? Okay. Well, I went in uh, when I, I purposely bombed the, uh, the test for admin and I would, I didn't want to be an admin guy. I knew I like to work with my hands, some mechanical guy. So I pretty much aced that. And I found myself in uh, weapons loading, actually, uh, the guys that hang bombs on airplanes. And I did that for I went through technical school in Denver. Then I went over to uh, Germany. I served two years there uh, as uh, as a weapons loader. And I, I found that Oh, this is a lot of work. I have a lot of respect for our maintainers. I can tell you that it's a lot of work and sometimes underappreciated. But uh, towards the end of my two-year tour, I, there was this announcement that came out and said, uh, anybody want to serve on the AC-130 gunship? There are openings for lower-ranking individuals. And at, at that time, I was. It was a two-striper, an E3, saying uh, – E3s, E4s apply, and I applied, and I was accepted, and before I knew it, I uh, wound up in Herbert Field in Florida going through uh, aerial gunner basic or qualification training. So how detailed is that? I mean, how difficult is that to do uh, after you bombed your your admin test? (laughs) (laughs) Well, certainly wasn't going to be an admin guy, so... uh, well, going through the uh, gunner training, I guess this is probably the point where I need to explain a little bit about how the gunship works. It's a, uh, when I started, it was a 14-man crew. We didn't have any female crew members back then. 14 people or five gunners on the aircraft, a pilot, co-pilot, flight engineer, uh, fire control officer, a navigator, two sensor operators, and what we called an IO, illuminator operator. And everybody had a specific task, and it was really – uh, kind of complicated, but the way the gunner or the gunship works, the gunner's task is actually more like uh, what you'd see in an assistant gunner uh, with a crew serve weapon. Uh, we take care of the weapon. We load uh, these 105 shell weighs 43 pounds, for example. It's all hand loaded. The, the weapons are maintained by the gunners on board. The actual firing depends on what type of mode is set. Uh, the typical firing mode is uh, using a fire control computer where the sensor operator tracks, uh, the pilot confirms, flies within a geometric orbit. When all the rate and coincidence met in the fire control system, uh, they hold down on their firing buttons and the round leaves the airplane. It's a very accurate system. Then the second mode is if that system isn't working, the pilot can fire the, the guns manually. We just crank them, lock them in step. And the third and the, me- the least accurate mode is if all those systems fail, the gunner can fire manually on voice commands of the pilot. And it's something we don't like to do, but I'll kind of add it in the story a little bit later because it has been done several times during combat operations with, uh, with some level of success. So going through gunner training took about, oh, 
I'm going to say about three months, assign you with a mentor, a Vietnam era uh, veteran that really knew what he was doing. And my instructors were really good. And before I knew it, uh, I was checked out, qualified and flying the line. All right. So you finished the gunner's course when, like month and year, what time frame we took looking at? Uh, I finished uh, in 79. So I got here in late 78. I, I finished it about March of 79. Okay. Uh, so Operation Eagle Claw is your first taste of, you know, live special operations community kind of stuff. For those who don't know, that's the Iran hostage crisis and the, uh, the attempted rescue there. So um, what's that whole experience for you? And, and how obviously it didn't go well uh, as the operation yeah. didn't go well, but kind of give us your background and, and what you went through. All right. Well, you know, it's a very, it was a very complicated operation, but I will try and truncate down as much as I can here. I just pretty much stick with the gunship involvement. Uh, a lot of people have no idea that gunships were involved in that. And that was kind of tamped down for a while. And I will say that even though I was a young guy, I had just turned 21 when the, when the, the notification came down, uh, it was unbelievably compartmentalized and classified to where we had no idea what we were training for at the beginning. There was only about uh, maybe four people on the whole base of Hurlburt Field, and they're all uh, high-ranking high individuals that were actually in, uh, in briefed into the mission and what we were going to do. So the very first thing we did was uh, they called us in, says, we're going to go on this training exercise. We deployed to Guam, of all places, Guam. Why was that? Because we were training for long-distance infiltration. Went over to Guam, did a whole bunch of that. Actually, they flew them over um, uh, longest or the uh, world record C-130 flight, uh, 29 and a half hours to get over there, uh, air refueled. And that was for uh, to, to mask OPSEC's OPSEC signature. Uh, so we come back from, uh, from Guam and the next thing we know that they got us practicing for uh, basically an airfield attack. And that was a Katami uh, airfield where the Iranians had their F-14s. We also, at about the same time, were training up for uh, a strike on Abaddon oil fields. And all these things I found out 30, 30 years later, uh, I had no idea what we we're training for. And that was by uh, on purpose, essentially. So both of those missions didn't really pan out too well. And by right about Thanksgiving time in 1979, we were added on to the, uh, the rescue mission. Again, uh, the training regimen stayed the same. Uh, everybody was kind of kept in the dark. We didn't actually find out what we we're going to be doing until we're in place at Wadi Kina in Egypt, which was called Location Alpha. It's where uh, where General Vaught was, and that's where Charlie Beckwith and all these other guys that I can't really say the name, but it's the fourth letter in the Greek alphabet. I think you can figure it out. Uh, so, and it, it went from there. Of course, our mission, my crew was crew number four. I was the airborne spare with uh, Colonel Jim Lawrence. And of course, everybody knows uh, we didn't launch, but had we had launched, uh, crew one was going to support the extract at the embassy. That was uh, at the time Lieutenant Colonel Gallagher. Then uh, Bubber Youngblood was going to support the, uh, the airfield, or excuse me, the airport in downtown Tehran to make sure that none of those F-4s rolled out on us. 
and then uh, Don Cagle was going to support the uh, the extra, extract airfield operation, where the Rangers were going to come in and seize that airfield. That's really our first big taste for uh, airfield seizure tactics. But of course, uh, we're getting ready to launch the first first night. the uh, The crews went out. The MC 130s deployed out of Oman, and uh, we heard about the accident uh, early in the morning. And we were trying to get some sleep because we we're anticipating launching that night. We never got that far. Uh, guys come up and said, "Hey, did you hear the mission scrub?" And at first, I'm like, "No, nah, you're you're just joking. You're kidding me." Now, and tuned into a English language radio there in uh, in Egypt, and they said they talked all about it. And by that time, the D boys were coming back. Uh, Rangers are loading up on a 141. And everybody skedaddled out of there except for us, all of us tactical guys. And it took us about uh, about a week to get back to the states uh, first w- through Opportune Air and Commercial Air. And we landed, and we were told specifically not to say a thing. And we all signed uh, non-disclosure agreements. And we got picked up at a bus, Air Force bus, picked us up in Pensacola, Florida. And we got on the bus just looking ragged after a week of, of travel. He goes, hey, guys, did you hear about the mission in Iran? Nobody said a word. And that's kind of the way it was. Wow, crazy. Uh, so after all that, do you have a sense of feeling that, like, maybe this isn't all I thought it was going to be? No, I actually enjoyed it. I, I thought it was, you know, I like a challenge. I've always liked the challenge. And uh uh, even though I was too uh, too young and dumb, perhaps, to know the difference, I thought that was just a normal activity. And I look back at it now and I say, wow, you know, I was sitting right in the middle of a real historical event. Some of these, uh, some of the guys were on the mission and all, all stripes, uh, whether it be the D-Boys or, or uh, the Ranger community or my own community uh, in AFSOC, they become lifelong friends. And we talk uh, talk often, and that was really kind of the the launching point for everything that happened in special operations can be traced back to that point uh, when I'm talking about post Vietnam. So it was uh, it's really more exciting to look back at it now than it was when it was actually happening. All right, next up in your career, uh, surveillance missions over El Salvador. Again, this is uh, one of those things that. Not sure how much you can actually say about it, but uh, kind of give us the background and what your mission was and how it goes. Okay, yeah, it's all been declassed now, and I, I've, you know, just to let you know, I had talked to our public affairs people there at AFSOC prior to this uh, this conversation, and also all the gunship history I, I have written has been cleared by Dopser, the pre-publication review people up there in, in D.C. So everything I'm talking about is all unclassed today. So our, our mission down in El Salvador was nighttime surveillance. Uh, why did they pick on the gunships? Well, because we had nighttime capability that nobody else had at the time. We look at IR and low light level television now is like everybody's got that. Back then, nobody had it. We were really cutting edge at the time. So uh, a lot of the guerrilla activity down there from the FMLN uh, guerrillas happened at nighttime. I used that for cover. So, well, okay. We, we went down there and it was supposed to be a clandestine mission. And it started out clandestine. 
And until we got shadows and they saw us uh, flying Learjets alongside of us, and uh, we'll add to, we had to remove our gun barrels. We had to fly. We couldn't even, weren't even allowed to have a uh, survival pistol. It was all peacetime surveillance. But that didn't stop the uh, the Salvadoran army fired on one of our crews because guess what? Nobody ever told them we were going to be there either. And really, the bottom line is we were surveilling all activity, and that wasn't just the uh, the guerrillas. It was also the uh, Salvadoran army, and uh, we were monitoring. And it was direct report to Joint Chiefs of Staff, direct tasking. So we had a straight line, straight up there, and everything we do is video recorded on the gunship. So every night they would review the videotapes of anything that we saw and kind of edit it, if you will, and send uh, the interesting portions of intelligence up to to the Pentagon for review. Uh, I tell you, the missions were really boring. We're working out of uh, Howard Air Force Base in Panama, which almost became a home for me in in the 1980s. And uh, we had the typical mission, we took off about sunset we flew three hours up in the country, tanking off the KC-135s, uh, go in country, fly four hours of surveillance. And we had what we call targets or actually just uh, surve- surveillance uh, points. And we would go videotape all the surveillance points and then we would exit the country uh, and then fly back to Howard and land about the time the sun was coming up. So it was very, very tough uh, at the beginning when you're not, you're awake all night and the airplanes are completely blacked out. So it was like almost a perfect time for sleeping. And there's a couple of times that guys go up on the, on the out or the return leg, guys go up on the flight deck to find everybody on the flight deck uh, sleeping, including the pilots. Uh, the only one awake was the nav. And of course that was, they're on autopilot and everything, but still, you, you don't want your pilot sleeping on uh, on a long mission like that. So it was uh, quite an experience. Uh, we flew that mission all the way from 1983 when it started until uh, 1990. We split that with uh, with the Panama operation, which we'll talk about later on. Yeah, before Panama is is Grenada and Urgent Fury. Uh, so that's you know early '83, I think, if I recall correctly, but. Uh, your role and mission there? Yeah, October 83, actually, we, we, uh, I was at the time I was actually in Panama flying those missions to El Salvador. And uh, we had three aircraft as part of that package to go to Urgent Fury uh, that launched out of Hurlbert. That was uh, Sims, Cuvion, and uh, uh, Twyford. And they rolled in. And of course, nobody expected the level of resistance that they had. And Twyford actually wound up uh, silencing uh, numerous 50 caliber and uh, there's a 12.7 uh, check guns and uh, some 23 millimeter AAA. So here I am down in Panama. We're hearing about this. Next thing I know, we're being re uh, retasked to go up to uh, Grenada. So we did. Uh, we're Went into crew rest, got up the next morning early, and we're we're heading on out. The pilot, my pilot, uh, says, well, uh, Tarpley was his name, says, uh, the maintenance guy said the INS system's broke, so let's uh, wait for it to be fixed. Tarpley says, nope, 
we're not waiting for it to be fixed. We're going to go without it. Says to the NAFs, says shoot Celestial all the way up there. So we went from Panama all the way to uh, Grenada shooting Celestial NAV, which is not exactly the most accurate method of getting there, but it'll get you there. We rolled on, uh, oh, I guess it was right around midnight that night. And uh, through a bunch of voice comms, we actually, uh, miscoms, I should say, we actually rolled in on the wrong island. And it was about 23 miles away. We were actually cleared to fire on that uh, vehicle that we had picked up uh, mistakenly. And thankfully, we did not do that because our fire control officer caught that and said, I'm not really sure if we're on the right island here, and this is not it. So there's like some verbal uh, combat that exuded between the pilot and the uh, FOCO, but the FOCO won, thankfully. We did not fire on the wrong island. So we finally landed uh, and had the INS fixed the very next night. We took off to support the Rangers that had just uh, – uh, secured or secured the uh, the medical students from Grand Anne's campus. And we rolled in overhead and the mission was pretty much done. Uh, they had abandoned a, a, a CH-46 helicopter on the beach. The Marines had actually accidentally hit a palm tree with one of their uh, rotors and the aft rotor and it just wrecked the helicopter. So they uh, wound up abandoning the helicopter there and they wanted us to come in there and uh, and destroy the helicopter. So now as we get to the part about the gunners firing manually, uh, the firing, uh, firing solenoid was broke. The fire, system, uh, fire control system was completely out. So we got clear to fire on this helicopter. And it's the one, if you go up on the Internet and you say CH-46, Grenada, Grand Ans, you'll see it. It's just shredded. It's got all kinds, uh, you know, thousands of holes in it that people have said, well, hey, that was – wow, those guys really took a lot of fire before they crashed. Well, actually, no, there was no holes in their helicopter to speak of before we opened fire on it. But I, I can tell you this, uh, we didn't hit it a single time directly. Uh, we hit our, all the way around it in the beach. It was right on the beach. 105 HE rounds crashing in the water, just, just messing up everything. And uh, after about 30 minutes of trying to hit it and just shredding everything down there, we finally uh, uh, said, well, I think that's enough. We didn't get it to burn or anything. So, And here it is many years later in my investigation when I'm, when I'm writing this book, I'm doing uh, due diligence. And uh, lo and behold, up on Facebook, there's a site, Grenada Veterans, and there's a Dr. Jordan on there. Dr. Jordan was a medical professor down there in uh, Grenada at the Grand Anne's campus. And he says, here's the helicopter I was on. When Spooky, he said, tried to kill me. And I'm like, whoa, what's this all about? He says, I knew our target. I knew we engaged a helicopter. Nobody else did. So I said, could you please explain? He says, oh, yeah, I was on that helicopter with me, two Grenadians, another lady with an artificial leg and a pregnant dog named Brandy. This almost sounds like a sitcom setup, uh, but th it really happened. And he says, we're on this helicopter. We heard this C-130 coming overhead. And all of a sudden, there was this loud boom. And I, we skedaddled off the helicopter. We went into the uh, Spice Island Inn, which is right next door. They went into the walk-in cooler. While we can commence to shoot at that helicopter for another 30 minutes, he thought that we we're trying to kill him the entire time. 
We didn't even know he was there. We cleared the target prior and never saw him because they were in the helicopter. Who would expect that? So fortunately, the time when our gun was broken, uh, firing sauna was broken, so we were actually manually pulling. Me and Jeff Drummond and Steve Hicks, if I remember. No, I can't remember who else is back there. Anyway, I know Jeff Drummond was pulling a lanyard, and he pulls a lanyard, and it's we're spraying bullets all around. And I'm saying maybe missing like 50, 60 feet. So it's not huge uh, problems, but it's it's not accurate. Well, our first round actually hit this beach shed and just blew it to pieces. And uh, that's the first round that uh, Dr. Jordan decided that it was time to get off that helicopter. We never saw them leave because we we're trying to figure out what's going on. So every time I talk to him after that, I say, you know, I'm sure glad we didn't kill you that night. You know, we're just joking around. And he goes, I agree, Bill. I, I, I agree with you. And he says, I said, thank God there's one time that we had a malfunction that actually worked in our favor, that would be the one because I uh, had that fire control system been working right. We would have hit that helicopter and uh, there would have been some pretty severe casualties on that. Uh. And from that point on, we had a few more targets. Uh, we had a uh, fired on a sniper position down at uh, Calvigny camp, but really not a whole lot. There was a lot of uh, turning uh, jet fuel into uh into noise after that. And the mission ended, we we're there for about two weeks and then we uh, redeployed back up to uh, home base. So after Grenada, you move on to Panama and Just Cause, sort of wrapping up this whole, you know, uh, seven year period, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. and, and the whole uh, extraction of Manuel Noriega. Uh, again, another, another one of these sort of hit jobs, right? Like it, it's a quick snatch and grab operation for you guys, and theoretically at least. Um, and, and, uh, this one was as successful as operations go. It was pretty darn close. Yeah. Yeah. I would tend to agree. And, uh, although the, I guess we succeeded in our perception that it was a quick snatch and grab, but actually we rehearsed for that mission for almost three years. We started in 87 and of course the, we had a, uh, presence, uh, the AC-130, H and sometimes the A model gunships uh, there in Panama flying what we call Panama Canal security missions, where we did surveillance of the uh, Aeron tank farm, the uh, Clayton uh, ASP or Port Clayton ASP, and some other targets there because the Panamanian Special Force, what they call the Macho de Monte, were coming in and they were actually harassing, uh, depending on what time, the Marine Security Force, the fast team that was there. Uh, the uh, the army took over for a while at Erhan. They had a couple of big incidents down there. They, even the uh, the Marines had a blue on blue, you know, a friendly force on friendly force incident down there, which one of their guys was uh, was killed. So it was pretty hot, a hot commodity to have the gunship over every night uh, surveilling these targets. And there are several times that we, we found infiltrators, but uh, could never really get uh, the uh, friendly forces on it before they disappeared into the jungle. It was pretty pretty thick down there, especially around Erhan. Uh, so that mission continued. We actually sent uh, myself and my friend Bobby Daniel uh, and Rick Silvas and some of these other guys would go out as uh, we ran out of ground liaison. So we actually uh, – went out there and uh, as RTOs and, and work the, the ground element as a liaison for the uh, 
both the Marines and the uh, and the Army. So those missions went on for quite some time. At the same time, uh, we were flying uh, a, one mission up north to El Salvador because we were very busy at that time. You got to remember we only had ten uh, AC one thirties at that time active and ten uh, reserve. And at one time we had nine nine gunships down there at the same time. It was really kind of hard to keep up with uh, with the uh, the Joneses, if you will, or the Noriegas. So uh, come up to uh, 1988, we started really getting serious about uh, taking out Noriega, and that's where those uh, those guys that uh, the fourth letter of the Greek alphabet guys come rolling in. We start really going through rehearsals with them, and we actually built an entire scale model replica of the Modelo prison out there on Eglin Reservation Field 7. And uh, the Modelo prison was uh, a notorious prison. That's where uh, Kurt Muse was being held, an American. Uh, essentially, he was a, uh, married to a Dodge teacher down there. And, and Kurt was running a, uh, uh, I would say, a pirate radio station that was really anti-Noriega. So Noriega finally captured him, locked him up in a prison, and and that's when uh, when the rescue idea really came up and said, we're going to have to snatch uh, him out first. So one element uh, practiced with that, uh, we had actually nine gunships eventually participate in, uh, in Just Cause. Uh, my particular uh, task was support the airfield seizure up at Rio Hato. And we supported uh, primarily the second Ranger bat and some elements of the third. The third pretty much went north on the field. The second bat and Bravo Company swept through the compounds down south, and that was really where the uh, where the 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 most uh, resistance was. Uh, and that's the home base of the uh, Macho de Monte, uh, which was uh, Noriega's special uh, forces, like I had identified earlier. So uh, we went rolling in. We come rolling in. Uh, and our objective, we flew right out of Hurlburt, by the way. Uh, we had two aircraft down there uh, as far as the Jesota went, two airplanes down there to support the uh, Muse rescue. They were already in place in Panama, and four more of us left out of Hurlburt, actually five if you want to count the, the spare. And uh, we all had different objectives. Uh, mine was a Rio Hotta, like I said. We come rolling in there right about 30 seconds prior to H hour, and our cue was to start engaging this anti-aircraft gun that was on the field uh, right when the bombs dropped from the F-117s. So F-117s dropped the bombs, boom, boom. By the way, they missed. Uh, they later said it was intentional, but okay, go with that. And uh, so we immediately started to engage this uh, 14 5-millimeter ZPU-4 uh, didn't hit it, but suppressed it. There was nobody on it, so we went moving to our second target, engaged. Uh, and I won't get into the grisly details, but there were some pretty ugly engagements. Uh, but it was necessary to protect our uh, Ranger force, and we, I think, engaged 13 targets that night. And, uh, and we finally pulled off station about 5:30 in the morning. I uh, had one danger close uh, fire mission was our last mission with uh, Lieutenant then uh, Dave Haight, who retired as a general officer. And I had the pleasure of meeting Dave and a bunch of the other Rangers when I went down to Panama for our 30th anniversary here last year 
prior to COVID, it was uh, December of uh, 19. Really uh, quite an interesting experience. Yeah, I mean, it just, it's unreal. It sounds like it. Um, you know, to this point, you've been through these three or four major sort of operations. Um, and technically, you haven't even gone to war yet. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. at this point, have yeah. you... Have you taken stock in all you've accomplished at such a young age for such a young you know, individual and, and how much you've really been a part of? I, I would say uh, not really. I mean, to me, it was uh, I didn't know any better. It was just a job as far as I was concerned. I mean, I, I, I did take pride in supporting uh, the people that we supported because, you know, after all, that's what the gunship does. We support the ground force. Uh, differed. Uh, quite a bit from what they did in Vietnam, which is more of an interdiction mission. Our job throughout the 80s and even up till to, to today is to support the ground force and be that heavy firepower for, uh, for the grunts. And mostly we do work with, uh, with Army. We have worked with uh, 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 the Navy and uh, SEAL, SEAL elements specific, uh, specifically, but uh, not much in the Marine Corps, a uh, whole different uh, set of whacks there. But, uh, yeah, uh, that's that's generally the uh, my concept. I, right. I didn't know any better. It was just a job to me, and I took pride in, in uh, doing the job. Well, I, I ask you that because obviously next is, is Desert Storm. Um, and, you know, I, off the top of my head, I mean, it, it doesn't – Desert Storm didn't really seem like um, – it necessarily required that level of special operations. I mean, all combat requires special operations, but particularly what you guys did, it was, you know, it didn't really seem like there was a fit there in the beginning. So how does your role unfold uh, when it comes to Desert Storm? Well, you're absolutely right, Mark. Uh, we we were also scratching our heads. As a matter of fact, when we, myself and Tim Harrison were sitting down in our local bar here, Fireside, when we saw the uh, the Iraqi army on TV rolling in the country, we thought, yeah, you know, or actually into Kuwait, I mean, and we're like, yeah, we ain't, this is not for us. We're not going to go. We didn't think we were going to go because we said it really is, isn't the right fit for us. Uh, unfortunately, uh, some other people felt that maybe we did need to go. And there was, uh, I would almost say, the urinary Olympics of all pissing contests that occurred after that. And we wound up going. And uh, our whole task was then supposed to be uh, air-based defense. That was uh, the whole concept. Was it like, you know, the, the Iraqis had the fifth largest army in the world. They had a very sophisticated uh, integrated air defense system, and we're flying a 130. So you can kind of kind of say, well, 130 is not really doing it. Uh, so well, we were there, and things kept on morphing and morphing and morphing until finally, uh, right before the war kicked off, I was on actually crew one. I wound up rotating back to the states for training because uh, we thought it was going to be a lot longer of a war than it turned out to be. So I rotated back and uh, uh, Tim Harrison came in. Uh, he was my old roommate and uh, the same guy I was drinking beer with just not too long before that when they first rolled in. And, and uh, well, long story short, they employed us in missions that we probably shouldn't have been employed in. There was, uh, it was all about the hunt for scuds. Uh, scuds was the most important thing. I go back to what I said earlier that we had a nighttime capability, 
that was really kind of rare. There was very few aircraft that had nighttime capabilities like we had back then. But we were uh, basically forced into that job to, to hunt for scuds. Never found one. Uh, I don't think anybody even got close to seeing one. And yet we almost lost two airplanes in one night, Billy Presscorn and uh, Phil LeBrun. Uh, they only survived because they dove down to the deck and came off about 50 feet off the deck, just moving at what we call mock snot as fast as it'll go, and uh, came out of the IADs. And the IADs actually had evolved into mobile SAMs. Uh, we knew where the IADs was in the stationary sites, but the mobile SAMs had moved in, and they were engaged. Uh, one of them was engaged by eights, and the other one by SA eights and the other one by sixes and eights, and they, they got out. So things kind of died off for a while there, uh, like, well, you know, we're going to lose some airplanes here if we don't. And about this time, I'm getting ready to go back uh, to, I actually volunteered to go back and tell me, tell me I'm crazy, but I did. But uh, so me and my buddy Bobby D went back, uh, the only two to go back, actually. And uh, uh the Battle of Kopshi, we lost uh, Tim and, uh, and the other guys, 14, 14 guys we lost in the Battle of Kopshi. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, we, we don't ever talk about that, right? Like, it, it, for whatever reason, Desert Storm was such a resounding military success that it's almost like we forgot about the limited losses we had there through that whole thing. Uh, yeah, maybe John Q. Public uh, might forget about right, it. We right. don't. Yeah, we, right. we have a with streets named after our guys, you know, we, we talk about it all the time. Every year we have a, a, a memorial for them. So yeah, it's, you know, part of the, you know, unfortunately part of the cost of doing business and I'm sure you probably face the same thing in the army. Uh, but uh, it's one of these things. It was a straight up combat loss. They were shot down during the battle of Kopchi and uh, nobody got out of it. It was 30 seconds from the time they were hit until they hit the water. It was, uh, there was no survivors. Tragic. And, you know, they, then Desert Storm just kind of fell off the edge of the planet for us at that time. I uh, got back, flew a couple surveillance missions and really was pretty much done. Uh, we uh, stuck around there, I guess it was till about May or so. And then everybody pulled back. We came back and uh, was definitely not a uh, right fit for the gunship. So that's you're you're correct in that assessment. Well, it seems like the operations of Bosnia were um, a right fit. You know, I mean, it's a, a lot of it was fought through the air, obviously. Um, but what was this mission for you? Well, Bosnia was a, uh, what we call, we're deployed to what they call deny flight. And uh, this is uh, the politicians kind of get involved in that, too, and said, well, all right, uh, we don't want any of the combat aircraft to fly, but we'll let helicopters fly because helicopters carry supplies. So they started weaponizing their helicopters and started flying them at night. So we were sent up to, uh, to find uh, targets. Essentially, chances of being uh, cleared to fire were a lot less, but we were up there to surveil the aircraft traffic, which was really kind of odd for a gunship, but that's the general charge we were doing. And uh, there were, again, sort of long, boring missions. I would say that they weren't vanilla. Like uh, like Grenada, there was really no anti-aircraft threat at all, except after, after uh, Twyford took out those guns especially. But 
uh, uh, Panama, not really any air threat, um, just small uh, AAA and so forth, but no, no missiles, no radars or anything. Well, they definitely had those in Bosnia. So we had to, uh, had to really kind of watch out for that. So we went tall. I mean, we we're up there on the thin air, our normal operational altitudes uh, for all the other ops. I mean, we did Panama at 5,500 feet, my crew. So we're way down there in the thick air. And uh, we're anywhere from six to 10 was pretty much a normal uh, altitude for the AC-130. Well, we were up there uh, banging on 14 and 15,000 feet AGL. And that air gets awfully thin up there and it gets awfully cold. And we would land uh, in the summertime. You get up there and the air, whole airplane, we could no soak. We'd be on supplemental oxygen, which is really kind of a bear doing all that heavy physical work with all that stuff hanging off of you. We'd land and it'd be warm and on the ground and the whole airplane start raining inside from being cold. It's like taking a, a cold Coke out of a, out of a uh, cooler and letting the hot air hit it. So there's really some hard flying there. Uh, eventually, my crew never shot in, in uh, Bosnia. We didn't really do a whole lot other than doing some sniffing. But uh, while I was there, and it takes me right into the next one, what a transition, is uh, we're there, and Wally Kuha, one of our sensor operators, comes out. We're getting ready to fly that night. He comes out of the command center, and he says, hey, hey, guys, go back into crew rest. We're going down to Somalia. What? Hmm. Why is that? Rangers got in some trouble. So we're going down there. And so we did. But I, I think I need to backtrack a little bit on the uh, Somalia mission as far as how that all fell out with the gunship. You're okay with that? No, absolutely. Go ahead. Okay, uh, there's a lot of misunderstandings about Gothic Serpent and why the gunships weren't there. If you've seen the recent news reports of one of our uh, retired command sergeant majors from SOCOM had made comments about uh, why gunships weren't there and why they were missed and everything else. You see, as part of the standard package that went with the, any joint special operations task force, AC-130 was in there. AC-130, Task Force 160 uh, were the two air, air assets that supported the Jasota uh, uh, directly. So uh, we were part of the spin-up prior to. And what happened with the gunships, most people are not aware of this at all, unless they're really tuned in to history. We went over there in June of 1993 and struck, uh, it was part of uh, the uh, UNOTAF, or actually just post-UNOTAF. And we were tasked by uh, the UN, uh, Boutros, Boutros Ghali, uh, you know, he's still screwing up my spell checker today. But uh, anyway, that guy wanted us to strike IDEED's infrastructure, tank, uh, tank yard, his vehicles, uh, which they call technical vehicles, uh, uh, all of his munitions, storage points, and everything else. So we did. We went over there, and we were there for about three weeks and just shot the crap out of that town. Uh, ROEs were very specific, saying you had to have helicopters, loudspeakers coming out there, telling everybody to vacate the area because they didn't want anybody to get killed or hurt. They just wanted to destroy his infrastructure. So, well, it was a pretty successful mission as far as the targets they wanted to get hit, 
completed the mission. The crews deployed back to the States. Uh, ID went underground and now just kept on operating like he always did. I mean, he was pretty versed at, uh, at guerrilla activities, you know, a lot of practice. So next thing we know, uh, it's June or oh, it's July, early August. They're saying, well, we're going to have to gin up Jasota uh, to go over there and actually capture Ideed. That's where Gothic Serpent came up. Before Gothic Serpent, the, pre, uh, the pre-deployment exercise was actually called Crafty Caper. Where they get these names, I have no idea. It must be a random generator or something. But uh, Crafty Caper. So that was the big uh, rehearsal prior to going over. Our crews participated in that. Okay, we're ready. Plans all in the can, ready to go, ready to deploy. Went up there and briefed General Garrison, briefed uh, the, the SOCOM commander. Uh, everybody was in on it. And then, but CENTCOM was in on it, General Hoare. And I need to say that's H-O-A-R, just in case you're wondering. And uh, it's... Uh, he did not want the gunships to go because, well, you know, the Somalis didn't really like what we did to them in June. And I, I can understand that. But, you know, he thought it was too much force to send. There was other people involved in that uh, that whole chain of command, too. And I'll let people do the research if they want to on it. But what it come down to, even though General Garrison, who I've talked to personally about this, he wanted the gunships there, but he was forced in a position that he couldn't defend. So he accepted the fact and went forward without the gunships, which takes me back to the point where I was just talking about too. Uh, we, we deployed to uh, Bosnia, flying that mission I was talking about, and then we got re- redirected four airplanes, uh, day late, dollar short, actually more than one day, but you get what I mean. Uh, down to Somalia, too late. Uh, the minute we arrived there, we went, we landed on the Moog, briefed up with the task force, told us what, what they wanted us to do. We went and did a surveillance overhead mission. The Somalis took note of that right away. And they hear the, the sound of those C-130 props overhead. And uh, they knew we were back. Well, the next night we flew, we actually, my crew fired on a road intersection next to the this place called the Cigarette Factory. And that was one of uh, IDEED's main uh, bivouacs or compounds where most of his uh, guerrillas were uh, were housed or where their station was. Uh, So we fired on the intersection, a five-minute slam fire, just poured out as much as we could. They said, you can fire up to 25% of your uh, combat load in five minutes. And we damn sure did it. It was one hell of a fireworks show. And right after that, another crew fired down there by uh, another uh, target on the other side of town. The next morning, uh, the ID calls for a ceasefire. And that's kind of what led it, the, uh, the task force, they redeployed to the States later that month. We thought we were going with them. Ha ha, no, not even close. You guys are going to stay here now because 10th Mountain really likes to hear those engines overhead. They get us uh, us feeling security knowing that you're there, which is true. I mean, we've we've capitalized on that quite a lot because even though uh, they might the opposing force might not know what we're looking at. They might think we're looking at them. 
And they don't really like that because they, they know they have real experience as to what, uh, what we could do to them and what uh, 105 is a mean animal. And they knew that. So we wound up staying there. Uh, task force went, we wound up staying there and eventually turned into just this boring mission of turning jet fuel into noise. And even though I think it had an effect on the ground, it ha also had an effect on the crews. My crew, uh, uh, Mr. Peabody, uh, that's what we call him. And we, uh, we flew 260 hours and 60 calendar days. We were just walking zombies. And it, we really got to be to the point where people were cutting corners and doing crazy things, you know, GIs getting bored. And when you get the idea that your mission really isn't of value anymore, it kind of saps the winds out, wind out of your sails. And we had a lot of that going on. My crew rotated out in uh, right before Christmas of that year. And uh, my buddy Bobby that, uh, that came over on one of the crews, uh, they were going to stay until uh, until March, the end of March. And unfortunately, uh, Bobby was killed on March 14th on oh, a gun explosion of uh, Jockey 1-4, which I wound up later being on the investigation uh, 110-14 Judicial Board for that. And probably know more about that than I probably should, but uh, it was a tragedy, no doubt. Yeah, again, unfortunate. Um, after Somalia... The next major event, of course, 9-11. Where were you and uh, how do you initially get into uh, the GWAT, the Global War on Terrorism? Yeah, the, uh, I was uh, in 94. Uh, I went, I became a headquarters guy. <laughs> I, I worked in uh, weapons and tactics, a tactician. By that time I had, uh, I was an E-8 and uh, really not flying the line anymore. So it's the thing I think that happens to a lot of people. Okay. You're taking off flying status and you're put up in a headquarters job, which I enjoyed too, because, you know, I got involved in a bunch of uh, uh, different weapons development programs and everything else. And basically doing that for, uh, for the guys that were flying the line. And uh, so I also, one of my ancillary duties was working as a uh, weapons capabilities demonstrator with foreign weapons for the U S air force special operations school and uh, so we're getting ready for a demo. It's one of the classes we have. We usually have around 100 students or so. It's a level one uh, anti-terrorism course. We're getting ready for it. I'm pulling all the weapons. We're getting everything ready to go. And J.J. Uh, Wilson comes out there and he says, hey, the uh, demo's canceled today. I'm like, what? He says, yeah, yeah. A couple of airplanes ran into the uh, Twin Towers up there in, uh, in uh, New York. I said, and JJ's well known for telling tall tales. So I didn't believe him at first. I said, no, nah, you're, you're bullshitting me. He goes, no, I'm serious. And sure enough, you know, I went back, looked at the TV and that was it. Everybody was spooling down. It was really uh, kind of a, I wanted to go. I really did. And uh, I was trying to get there as a staff guy. Now nah, the general says, you're not leaving here. So I wound up supporting uh, my guys from, uh, from my desk in the headquarters it's kind of a uh, a downer, but somebody's got to do it. You know, you can't you can't be a, an action guy for everything. And I realized that by that time I was uh, pretty senior, and that's a young man's game, and now a young ladies' game too, because we have female crew members as well. And uh, it's kind of kind of what 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 it was. And I actually retired, left active duty in uh, in '04, 
and uh, I basically retired in February of 05. Came back on as a civil servant, and uh, first a contractor, then civil servant. Uh, that's where I work today, uh, supporting uh, the guys that I used to be in the airplane uh, with uh, in, the, in the gunship world. So it takes me to almost 43 years uh, working uh, gunships and 45 plus uh, in, uh, in the Air Force. What's the impetus for writing the book about the, uh, the history of the AC-130? Well, uh, it, it was kind of by default. Uh, we, uh, General Worcester is one of our former commanders. is really, really great guy. He used to, he's a hunter. So he stopped down in my office all the time, talked about hunting and rifles. Cause I, I'm a target shooter. I shot for the air force team for, for 15 years as well. And so he would all come down and it just finished a helicopter history book. And he says, you know, uh, my dad was, actually involved with the AC-130, uh, the initial first AC-130 in Vietnam back in 1967 is actually when they were doing the, the test in 68 and says, you know what? We haven't written a, a gunship history book since 1973. And I, I'm going to do something about that because we're going to go to the history office and we're going to hire a guy to write the book. I said, he says, can I count on you to, uh, to help, connect the author with, uh, with veterans. I said, yeah, absolutely. So long story short, we hired a guy, paid him 300 grand to write the book in a two-year contract. And what he turned in really wasn't what General File, then commander, wanted. He says, this is, we're not going to publish this. It's not what we wanted. Okay, great. What are we going to do now? Well, have no opportunity, no more money to write another book. So uh, Colonel Bob Monarch looks at me up there and this big meeting we had is a what we're going to do meeting. He looks at me and he says, well, chief, what do you think? And I said, all right, all right, I'll write it, but you're going to have to give me the time to do it because if I'm going to put my name out, it's going to be right. He says, I need plenty of time to get this done. He says, take all the time you want, Bill, because we're not paying you. I said, I'm good with that. <laughs> and that was seven years ago. It took me seven years to write those two volumes. And I actually went all the way back to Vietnam, 1968, through uh, when the first production AC-130 came into effect, 1968 uh, through 1975. All of Vietnam is covered in the first volume. And the second uh, is uh, all the other operations we're talking about all the way through, uh, through Bosnia. Uh, from 76 through uh, 95. And you know what was really kind of interesting is I thought when I started on that, uh, the second volume, which we call Invictus, Ghost Riders Invictus, uh, I thought, well, this is going to be easy for me to write because you know, I was on all these operations. I, what else is there to know? I found out uh, just how much I didn't know. I mean, you got to look at it for multiple perspectives. And I said, well, holy cow, I learned more by doing the research than I thought I'd ever know. And I found out how much I didn't know. And I think true history has to reflect that as well, including uh, the good and the bad. You, you can't be all happy, 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 you know, smile and everything else. And you got to have the, uh, the good and the bad and some in between. And it's, it's got to tell the real history uh, in a way that uh, is uh, understandable uh, and stands the test of time. And I, I think I've done that. Uh, I've had about a hundred people review it so far and uh, they all say the same thing, you know, I'll get the comments back. What do you think? 
I guess I can say this, and it's a podcast, right? The, the comments are, holy shit, this is great. I'm like, okay, I take that as a good sign. Uh, so it's, uh, it's well worth the endeavor. And I think we, we, the Air Force, and me and my community and the gunship, because we're all a big family. I, I've always said, you know, we're, we're joyfully inbred in the gunship community. We all, everybody knows each other because it's such a small community. And, you know, especially me with the, uh, you know, the senior guy now uh, that uh, took the responsibility of actually capturing this history and uh, making it uh, live longer than any of us. That, that was the key. Well, again, just a fa- fantastic job on the books. And obviously, you know, 40 plus years of a, of a military career at the highest level and the most elite, you know, units uh, around the world speaks for itself. It's just been uh, incredible to hear about all this history, incredible to to talk to someone who's lived through it all, because it's not often that everybody gets to touch all of these major operations, but you seem to have done it and, and done it amazingly, and uh, certainly just a, a an incredible, incredible 43 years. Obviously, you've got to be very, very proud, but, you know, again, uh, thank you, and we're proud of you. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. All right, Bill Walter, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you, sir. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.